the school district by way of the teachers and the counselors and the uh, dean of students absolutely failed to do what they're required to do. And we all know, had they done that, ultimately, this shooting would never happen. You know, he's got a life appointment. Nobody can do it. You can make him do it. But I think he was very aware that uh, of what happened with Justice Ginsburg. And he's got to look at the calendar and say, if he doesn't do it this year, uh, then maybe it's much harder for Biden to make a nomination next year. How do you leave Barry Bonds out of the Hall of Fame? How do you leave Roger Clemens out of the Hall of Fame? It makes no sense. You're listening to Pod Suey, the week's top stories served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Two major updates in court cases surrounding the Oxford High School shooting. Alleged shooter Ethan Crumbly's lawyers say they will plead insanity in his defense, and another family is filing lawsuits. The family of Tate Meir, the 16-year-old football star killed in the shooting, are suing the Crumley family for reckless conduct and multiple Oxford High School staff members, claiming the school could have done more to prevent the tragedy. Ben Johnson is representing the Meir family, and he spoke to Guy Gordon. There's two systems of, of jurisprudence, criminal, which is jail time, and civil, which is uh, usually, in, in, the, in terms of a personal injury case, money. That's the only thing that can be asked for. Uh, in this case, the Crumleys, both Ethan, the shooter, and then his parents, of course, are in jail, and they're facing criminal charges. Uh, but the school district, by way of the teachers and the counselors and the uh, dean of students who had direct interaction and actual knowledge of the dangerous propensities that Ethan posed, uh, absolutely failed to do what they're required to do under the Michigan Child Protection Law and that is to report this to the law, uh, author, uh, law enforcement authorities and or the Child Protective Services. And we all know, had they done that, ultimately, this shooting would never happen. So we are suing all of the above. So not just the school officials, but Crumley and uh, the school officials who we believe to be grossly negligent. So the Michigan law does make those school officials mandatory reporters that they there there was no wiggle room here. They had to call in law enforcement. Seven uh, MCL 722.623 individuals required to report abuse or neglect, including but not limited to school administrator, school counselor, teachers. Yes, sir. But how is that abuse and neglect? That's an awfully broad definition. I mean, I, I. I mean, I think that if you look at this, a, a reasonable person would have thought that this child was a threat. And okay. and that, there is no, that, so you're saying there is no obligation to report that, but if you think that that child is being abused or neglected, that was the actionable part. No, sir. Let's go back to what you said. Clearly, this child was being abused and or neglected by the definition that, that, that is spelled out in uh, MCL 722.622 guy where it talks about uh, someone who's responsible for, t uh, for uh, raising this kid, if you will, uh, his parents, right, from giving him appropriate medical care and attention. This kid was absolutely beyond mentally struggling. This kid was outwardly threatening. We now know through the investigation, cutting off animals' heads. He put mm -hmm. a, a bird's head in a jar that he kept for six months in his bedroom. We know that he was absolutely um, just enamored with uh, automatic weapons, but especially firearms. We know that he was constantly looking up through the investigation, school shootings, 
he detailed that he was going to shoot up a school in his journal and his computer, and it goes on and on and on. And then at school, Guy, literally the, the day before, we have no info about what was going on before uh, Monday, November 29, or Tuesday, November 30, but we will now that the lawsuit's been filed. You know, in the, in the Oxford community, in, in, at least I think among some, and I think for those of us that have been reading and watching this happen, those teachers that, that sounded the early warning about the ammo shopping and, and the pictures, they brought those things to the school district's attention, to their superior's attention, and yet I, I see that they're, they're named as defendants in your lawsuit. Yes, why why is that? Okay, great question. 722.623. This is the mandatory reporting that I just read to you. Okay. This is in subsection A. Here we go. A notification to the person in charge of a school does not relieve the member of the staff of the school by way of their obligation of reporting to the department, Child Protective Services, as required by this section. So, in essence, what you really have is you have apparently Oxford operating its, telling its teachers and telling counselors and so forth to absolutely violate the law by not doing what they're required to do and calling the police 911. It's all they had to do, guy. Yeah. So, well, I mean, it's... now I, I would love to sue Oxford Public Schools. Maybe I should, but there's this thing called governmental immunity <laughs> that says I can't, which, by the way, uh, that that law is such a joke. It's unbelievable. Where if this would have happened at a private school, guy, right? I wouldn't have to prove gross negligence. But since it's a, pr- a public school and I'm suing a public employee, I do. Now, no one's above the law, and I think it's a crooked law, and I think it's about time that Michigan take a real long look at this law that's gone on way too long, where it shielded the guilty, like it's doing in this case. Stephen Breyer, the 83-year-old Supreme Court Justice of 27 years, announced he will retire from the bench at the White House on Thursday, making room for a younger progressive judge to keep conservatives from possibly expanding their majority on the nation's highest court. President Joe Biden made this pledge on the campaign trail. I'm looking forward to making sure there's a black woman on the Supreme Court. University of Michigan law professor Richard Freeman was on All Talk with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz. Uh, It wasn't at all surprising. Uh, This is a very personal choice. And, uh, of course, he could have gone on. Uh, There was, as you say, a good deal of pressure on him. But, uh, you know, he's got a life appointment. Nobody can do it. It can make him do it. But I think he was very aware that uh, of what happened with Justice Ginsburg. And uh, he's got to look at the calendar and say, if he doesn't do it this year, uh, then maybe it's much harder for Biden to make a nomination next year. And then who knows what's going to happen in 2024. And um, who knows how much longer he'd uh, you know, be able to stay on. So, uh, I, you know, personally, I think that he would have loved to stay on the court for uh, a long time. Um, but I think he uh, he made the risk-averse decision. President Biden, uh, you know, he's limited his nominees to black females with a lot of pressure from Jim Clyburn. It, it seems the favorite in this is Katanji Brown-Jackson, who actually worked for Breyer as a clerk. But since we're talking about demographics, uh, the other favorite is Leandra Kruger. She is black, but she's also Jewish. And Breyer's right. seat has historically been held by a Jewish person for about 100 years or so. Will that factor into who Biden nominates, do you think? Uh, I don't think the Jewish factor will uh, enter in um, because uh, 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 
Yeah, as you say, I mean, he he said he's going to appoint a uh, a black woman, and I think that's uh, that's it. And uh, uh, there have been other Jewish uh, justices on the court. There is another Jewish justice on the court. I don't think that will uh, I don't think that'll factor in. It'll be a black woman, and uh, the the two names, uh, two people you mentioned, are certainly among the front runners, um, and uh, also Judge Childs of South Carolina whom uh, Clyburn favors. And by the way, I, I want to say, you know, for those who, who think, oh, my goodness, it's it's all about demographics, that's been true for a long time. It used to be that the demographics were all about um, uh, geography. Um, uh, it used to be that there was one justice from each of the uh, circuits uh, into which the nation is divided. And when... Uh, President Roosevelt appointed William Douglas. It was he wanted a Westerner. There's always been demographics, and as you say, you you know, for for a while there was a a Jewish seat. You know, so this is nothing nothing new. And of course, uh, President Reagan said he was going to nominate a woman. You know, it goes back a long time. Well, regardless of what happens, who gets chosen, the balance of power is going to remain the same. 63 conservative. The, the concerns, it seems, is in 2025. If conservatives take the White House, if Breyer were to have stayed in the court and were to have passed away, then that would have led to a larger, larger conservative court. And we've seen a number of slight majority decisions with this court, five to four decisions rather than the six to three along ideological lines. How much do, does that margin in a decision matter, a broad decision versus a more narrow decision on the scope of a decision? Well, it can it can matter uh, quite a bit. I mean, so, uh, look, my guess is that there are now uh, at least five votes to um, uh, completely do away with uh, Roe v. Wade and his successive cases, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. If... Um, if Justice, uh, if the Chief Justice uh, Roberts were the swing vote, my guess is he would uphold the Mississippi law, but not completely do away with uh, with Roe. So every every vote can uh, can matter. Uh, just just as in the Senate, uh, we see the difference between having 50 votes and 51. You know. Um, uh, the, the difference between five and six can be important. General Motors announced a $7 billion investment in Michigan auto plants to build batteries for electronic vehicles, creating an estimated 4,000 jobs in the state. Governor Gretchen Whitmer and GM President Mark Royce both appeared on the Paul W. Smith show this week. Yeah, how did you work that timing? That couldn't have been, <laughs> that couldn't have been any better. I mean, the day before you have to do your state of the state to get a $7 billion-plus present like that from Mary Barra and the hardworking men and women of General Motors. Did that just happen, or had you guys been working together? We've been working for a long time on this. Um, and, you know, Paul, you and I chatted back during the pancake breakfast for the Detroit Parade Company. Yeah, oh, yeah. I told you that, you know, there's a narrative out there that we're not working together, we're not getting things done in economic development. I said, it's just not true. Uh, we have, we've been at it with our utility partners, the business community, Republicans and Democrats, the legislature, my office, MEDC, and um, you see the fruits of that uh, in this in this incredible investment, and we're we're just so thrilled about it because it's it's really important for GM. It's really important for the state of Michigan. Well, as you pointed out, Governor, it, it does send the message to the rest of the country. Uh, I mean, let's face it. After we kind of all got slapped into reality when Ford Motor Company said, "Oh, by the way, we're taking our 11 billion dollar project outside of Michigan because 
Michigan wasn't ready for it or didn't have what we were looking for or whatever their reason was. Um, that that kind of slapped us all in the face and, and got us moving on this. And now this proves that we are ready and that we can, even if we weren't then, we are now to be able to do a deal like this with General Motors. Do you agree? Absolutely. We are we're going to win. We are in competition with the whole world. We want to make sure that as especially our incumbent businesses look to invest, they think Michigan first, but also, you know, we are we're going to show the world and I think the narrative has been turned on its head. They used to think, "Oh, we didn't have the tools other states had. We moved too slow." Anything's dysfunctional and we turned that on its head in the last couple of months and we're going to continue to put our foot on the accelerator. $7 billion uh, back into Michigan uh, in our manufacturing facilities. Four, $4 billion of that in, into uh, Orion right up the, the road here uh, to, to retool that for the new uh, Silverado and Sierra. And then uh, $2.6 billion on uh, a new cell plant over in Lansing, which, um, you know, if you've never been in one of these, it's 2.8 million square feet, Wow! Uh, which is like a, a small city. And it's really something to behold. So to have those and then have the jobs to go with it, you know, 4,000 new, brand new jobs, uh, another 1,000 retained in the Orient plant that we have today. And then, uh, you know, that, that growth uh, is split between roughly 2,300 and, and, and Orient uh, new jobs and then 1,700 in the new cell plant over there. So it's really uh, really a lot of jobs and a lot of capacity and, and uh, a lot of money into the Michigan economy. So we're yeah, it just we could make Michigan uh, and the Midwest, uh, you know, the epicenter of R&D, uh, EVs and manufacturing here for years to come. And, that, and that's really what we're trying to do. And, and we can't well, let me reiterate, can't say it enough uh, for a company that's invested a heck of a lot in their hometown um, and, and in their home state. This total seven billion dollar investment, new investment from GM is the single largest in company history, and most of it is going to the EVs. The, the We're talking about all-in. We're all-in as as a company and as a state. It's uh, uh, I think the way they put it in this morning's Detroit News, Kalia Hall, Craig Mauger, and uh, Brianna Noble, it's the bet to give General Motors $824 million in state incentives uh, most of uh, $6.6 billion in electric vehicle projects might be risky for the state, but many believe it's necessary for Michigan to stay in the race for the auto jobs of the future as the uh, industry pivots to electrification. So it really is a, it's a gamble, it's a bet, but it's got to feel good that your state uh, is all in with the company. Former Red Sox slugger David Ortiz was the only player elected this year to the Baseball Hall of Fame, with Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens falling short in their final year of eligibility on the writer's ballot. Lynn Henning from the Detroit News is a Hall of Fame voter. Here he is with Guy Gordon. I'm somewhat surprised because, again, when you have numbers that are as compelling as theirs, uh, that were racked up uh, quite apart from any of the PED times, uh, I thought that uh, 75% of the guys would, would go that route. But uh, they dug in their heels, and uh, that left uh, David Ortiz as the only winner. Yeah, Barry Bonds had, what, 400 home runs prior to 1998 when it's kind of, I think that's, yeah. the, that's the demarcation line when they we be, believe he began using PEDs. 
so he he was on a four a Hall of Fame trajectory long before that. But shouldn't you be held to account for your behavior on and off the field in terms of whether or not what you're doing can affect play and deprive the other team of, of, of a level playing field? If you could have a perfectly clear report on who did and who didn't during that time, Guy, I'd, I'd go along with you completely. But it's so difficult to know during that lawless era when there was no testing and Major League Baseball wasn't doing anything about it and guys felt that they really needed uh, to keep up competitively with the users or they were going to be seeding ground there. It didn't make it right, but it was uh, emblematic of a time that was just absolutely out of control. And for that reason, I've always had this view about the Hall of Fame. I, I made my ballots out consistently with this thought in mind. If guys had Hall of Fame careers outside of that period where PEDs weren't going to clearly make any difference in their Hall of Fame credentials, I vote for them. I don't like it, but I vote for them. If guys perhaps got a little boost, just enough to put them across the finish line with their numbers, guys like Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, Rafael Palmeiro, I haven't okay. voted for them. And, and that's the only way in an imperfect election, a guy that I've been able to sort this thing out with any sense of, of conscience. Uh, again, I don't like it, uh, but, but the idea that the rest of these guys didn't use, preposterous. People forget David Ortiz tested positive in 2003. Now, he's explained that he was using supplements. Well, that's what everybody said during that time. I'm not incriminating, but similarly, I don't think you can exonerate all of these guys either. So let's get down to what Hall of Fame performances over the years, separate from PEDs, should be all about. And it's through that filter I've made out my ballots, right or wrong, for all these years. So help me when you guys uh, and and uh, your, you and your fellow baseball writers are chewing the fat in the press box, mm -hmm. and they and they are of a mind that these guys need to be punished and have disqualified themselves. What what's their justification that that it, it's more it's more than just about performance that they should have a good conduct record as well? Uh, again, my only problem with that guy is you don't know with any certitude who was using and who wasn't and to right. what degree they were so we have a blanket problem here and that to me takes peds pretty much out of the equation and allows you and leaves you and really compels you to vote based on their numbers otherwise and in that context how do you leave barry bonds out of the hall of fame how do you leave roger clemens out of the hall of fame it makes no sense and at some point, uh, when we get a little bit uh, less high and mighty about this, um, they're going <laughs> to get their plaques. Uh, again, I don't condone it, but I'm looking at it, I think, with a sense of realism for that period. And the blame and the responsibility fell at that point on Major League Baseball, as well as the Players Association. They had no system for, for testing right. set up. It was a totally lawless period. There was anarchy in that respect. And just about too many people, put it that way, were using PEDs at that time. Okay, and I I, I agree with your philosophy, and I think it I think it's uh, it very defensible. But again, when you talk to your fellow baseball writers, how much of it just comes down to the fact that a Bonds didn't play the game, didn't like talking to the media, neither did Clemens. Uh, that that they weren't 
the most likable guys. Yet Poppy <laughs> was a very likable guy, very accessible, and beloved in, in Boston and with the Boston media. How much of this becomes a beauty pageant for guys that uh, played nice with the media? It's a natural question, but there are all kinds of guys who are an absolute pain in the neck to deal with guy uh, who went into the Hall of Fame real quickly. They'll do it for Pod Suey this week. For full interviews or anything else you might have missed, go to thegreatvoice.com. See you next time.